religious leaders are, are, are kind of done with Jesus at this point. They are trying to figure out a way to get rid of him. But there's a problem. He's really, really popular. The crowds love him. There's so many people flocking to his teaching. You remember just, uh, just a little while ago, he told some parables, and they were really pointed at the Pharisees and religious leaders to point out their fault, how they failed the people. And after they heard the parable of the talents, they knew it was about them. They knew he was being critical of them, and they wanted to arrest him right then, but they couldn't because the people loved him, and they perceived that he was a prophet, and they knew that it would be a very unpopular move. And so it, it's almost like it feels like they kind of backed up and said, okay, how, do, how can we get him? And they came up with this strategy, let's go, let's go send Let's go give him a bunch of questions and try to trick him. And so uh, if you were here last week, we talked about the question about paying taxes. And they were basically almost trying to turn the people against him. If he answers this question wrong, people don't like these taxes. People think these are unfair. And so they're not, they're not going to want him to say the wrong thing. And the people will turn against him if he does. And so they try to trick him up. And he gives this amazing answer that, that kind of silences them. And so then these religious groups start coming with their different questions. And to me, it seems like one group is asking a question to try to get him to say something that might offend another group. And then the other group would have to take care of him, and then they would be off the hook. It's just like there's all these different things. And so they come to them with questions, and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do, how do we get rid of him? How do we turn the people against him? How do we turn another group so that somehow we get him off out of the scene? And so we look at this, and this is the second group that comes to him this is a second question and it's a group of people known as the Sadducees and so the Sadducees in case you don't know uh, who these guys are they were they were a minority group of religious leaders but they had a lot of power they had people in the right positions of authority so they had a lot of power and prestige in the in the circle of religious leadership but they were still there weren't there weren't as many of them and it's probably because of their beliefs they be, they they basically were known for what they didn't believe in they didn't believe in a resurrection what it says in the passage. They didn't believe in an afterlife. Life, life after death, that didn't happen for them. Uh, they didn't believe in spirit. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in all those kinds of things because they believed that all life was just here and now. Like what, what we have here, you live, you, you do your best, and then you die, and your body just rots in a grave. Like that, that was all they had, and that was what they were known for. They didn't believe in a life after death. Which, I mean... That's not, that's not like the, the, the belief that I think you would have people gravitating towards, right? It's such a hopeless belief. I mean, if you think about these Sadducees and the fact that this was all they had, all, life was it. That was all they had. Like, if you just can imagine that, you, you would kind of assume they would probably be pretty sorrowful. I mean, they would, it, it seems, right, that they would be sorrowful people. They, they, they wouldn't be happy. They wouldn't be filled with hope. I mean, if you, you just think about the fact that they believe that there's nothing that happens after this life, that this, this is all there is. It, you, would, you would kind of say, I bet you can know them. They're probably walking around pretty depressed. That would be my perception, that they would be pretty depressed. I mean, all they have is this life, whatever years you have, and then it's over for good. Like, it's, it's it. And you think, man, these guys, they were probably pretty melancholy. You, you would you would probably think, okay, they 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 would be sad. You see, that's what they would be. They would that that's I couldn't I couldn't like I had to do it. Like that's how you remember. It's a bad preacher joke, but that's how you remember. These guys didn't believe in the resurrection. There's no hope for them, and so they'd be very sad. You see, that's that's the way you're supposed to remember this. I'm pretty sure. And and then there was the Pharisees. And I'm not going to tell you what how you can remember them. 
that wouldn't be fair. You see what I did there? So anyway, these Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. They have nothing to look forward to. This is it. And it just, to me, it's a reminder of how important the resurrection is. Guys, the resurrection is what gives us hope. The resurrection is the center of our hope as a Christ follower. Uh, obviously, at, at this point, Jesus hasn't died and come out of the grave, but that fact becomes the dominant theme in our New Testament. Like the, in, in Acts, when they are talking about Jesus, they zero in on the resurrection because the resurrection is our hope. Paul says, if all we have is this life and there's nothing after this, then we should be pitied about, among all men. He says, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, then we are wasting our time. Like you and me, we're literally wasting our time right now. Why? Because the resurrection is central. Yes, he died on the cross for us. He took our punishment. He took our place on that cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. Jesus did that. His, him in place of us. But if he stayed in the grave, then there's no hope for us. But the fact that he conquered the grave, he came out of the grave, he's alive today, that is where we find our hope. The resurrection gives us hope. And without that, like, I just can't imagine that you would ever find any hope. This is all, all, all it would be. It's just this life and then it's over. But no, we have life eternal, this promise that is secure. Why? Because Jesus came out of that grave. Because he conquered it, we have this kind of hope. In, in fact, the resurrection is not just about hope. It's so central in all this that if you can take the resurrection out of the story, then everything becomes meaningless. If Jesus is still in that grave, if, he's, if he, his body was stolen or lost or hidden or whatever, and that he didn't actually come out of the grave, then I don't know if we should pay attention to anything he said. I mean, the claims that he made, the teachings that he had, like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That doesn't really mean a whole lot if he died and he was buried and then we lost the body. But if he came out of that grave, if he's still alive, if he conquered death and conquered the grave, then all of a sudden, everything he said has more weight. Everything he said, we need to pay attention to. Everything he said has more meaning because of this resurrection. It's central. It's our hope. It's, it's everything about what we're doing and why we're gathering is because Jesus Christ died for us, was buried, and he came out of that grave on the third day. The resurrection gives us hope. And so... The Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection, they come to him, and they're like, well, okay, let's trick him. And man, if, you, like, if you're looking at this, it's kind of a crazy question. It's like they, they decided to give him a story problem, you know, those horrible things from math? They're like, hey, if a bus left Dallas and was headed to Nashville at 6 p.m. and traveled 75 miles an hour on average, when did it get to Nashville? And you're like, I don't know. I don't care. I don't even have a protractor. Like, I, I don't know how to do this, right? Like, I don't. Those story problems are horrible, and that's what they kind of come to him with a story problem. And, and it's, it's just, it's kind of just crazy if you think about it. Like they had, okay, there's a man, he had a wife, no kids, he died. And here's what they do. They're going back to this kind of obscure law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25. And you can look this up later. You'll get distracted right now, but look it up later. It's, it's really in the Bible. That if a man dies without kids, his brother then is obligated to marry his wife, his widow, so that he can have children with her and carry on his brother's line, his brother's name. 
if the brother refuses and says, no, I don't want that deal, I'm out, then the, the widow can take him before the city elders, the leadership of the city. She's supposed to take off one of his sandals and spit in his face. It's in the Bible. And then from that point on, he will forever be called the man who had a sandal taken off. That's a bad Twitter bio right there. You don't want that. Like, you do not want anybody saying that about you, apparently. That's a really, really bad insult. And so that was, that's the law they're pointing back to. But because they don't believe in a resurrection, they think that whole idea is just completely silly. They just compound this whole thing. They try to muddy it all up. And so like, okay, he had this man, he, he, he died. He didn't have children. So his brother, he had seven brothers. And his second brother he married her, he died, didn't have children. So the third brother married her, he died, he didn't have children. The fourth brother, despite what everybody around him told him, he married her too. Somewhere along the way, he needs to check the soup, right? So fourth brother, fifth brother, sixth brother, seventh brother, they all die. And they're like, okay, here's the question. Who will she be married to in the, in the resurrection? It's just a ridiculous question because... In, in, in some sense, they're trying to get Jesus to say, no, that, there's no resurrection, because then the Pharisees would get mad at him. But Jesus looks at him as a completely different answer. They're, they're hypothetical, ridiculous, silly question, and here's his answer. You guys are always wrong. <laughs> and that's kind of what he says. You're always wrong. He says, you don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven and say hey, you you guys don't even know the scriptures you're supposed to be teachers of the law you don't know the scriptures and you also are doubting and denying the power of God and as he's answering that he kind of starts with the second one he says let me talk to you about the power of God you think and this is what the Sadducees kind of thought and this is why they dismissed it they thought that this eternal life this resurrection life was just an extension of the life that we have now it's just going to look the same but it's going to last forever but Jesus is saying I know what you're doubting the power of God. What God is going to do is he's going to make resurrection life, this life eternal, it's going to be something altogether different and altogether better than what you have now. And so here's how we kind of know that, because he says this marriage thing that we have here, we won't have that in heaven. It's not going to be a part of the, the eternal life experience. And you're like, well, why is that? Like if, heaven, if marriage is such a big deal, the, God institutes marriage in Genesis he puts man and woman together. It's not good for man to be alone if that's such a big deal. And there's all these passages in our Bible about how, how marriage is supposed to work and it's supposed to be this wonderful relationship above all the relationships. Then why doesn't it continue on into heaven? Jesus says there won't be marriage in heaven. Why? Because what he's doing in heaven, internal life, is going to be bigger and better than anything we experience here. See, sometimes I think what we do is we think of heaven as just the elimination of all the bad. No sorrow, no pain, no tears, no sickness, all those things. And that's all true. Like, that's one of the things the Bible says about heaven. But it's even bigger and better than that. Here's, here's how I think we can say that. Heaven is not just an elimination of the bad things. It's an improvement of the good things beyond our imagination. Think about that for a second. As, as, as great as marriage is designed to be, as God says, here's what this is all about. Like, this is a picture of the gospel, a declaration of his glory to the world in this marriage relationship. It's supposed to be a, a lifelong commitment, partnership to walk with you through all of life. That's what marriage is supposed to be. And he says, in heaven, we don't need that anymore because what we have in heaven is even greater than that. It's 
bigger and it's better. The relationships we have will, will supersede and transcend that. It's not just the elimination of the bad things. It is, and that's worth looking forward to right there. But this anticipation grows when we understand that it's an improvement of everything good. Like everything good in life is just a shadow of how great it's going to be for all eternity. It should like pull us towards eternity. It should set our hope in that life and not just this little short life that we have here but this hope for all eternity because it's better it's bigger and it's it's beyond what we can even imagine and so he says you you guys don't understand the power of god you've limited it you think no that can be possible It'd just be life just like it no 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 it's something different it's altogether different and it's altogether better and he also said you don't know the scriptures the sadducees focused on the first five books of the Old Testament, the law. And they didn't really even care that much about the, the prophets and the Psalms and Proverbs. They, they didn't give much weight to that. They really majored on the law. So Jesus says, you don't even know the scriptures when you talk about no resurrection. And he could have easily gone to Daniel. Daniel chapter 12 is a very clear passage in our Old Testament about uh, life eternal and resurrected life. He could have gone to Isaiah. He could have gone to the Psalms. There's lots of passages in that part of our Old Testament that point us to the resurrection. But Jesus knows these guys just really, all their weight is given in the law in the first five books. And so he goes right to Exodus. And that's exactly where he's going to teach them. Verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God, which is like this insult? Don't you know? Haven't you read this? And then he goes to Exodus, Moses and the burning bush. God's speaking to Moses from the burning bush, and he says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Those three patriarchs who died hundreds of years before, I'm the God of them. And then Jesus says this, he, God, is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Why would God say that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob if they're dead and gone and nothing ever happened? Like, no, he's the God of the living. That's who we serve. And so he goes to the Sadducees, their question about the resurrection, he points them right to the law, to the Old Testament, to Moses, to one they held in high regard and said, even Moses, you can see this. You don't know the scriptures. You don't even know the power of God. I mean, his answer is so great in verse 33. It says, when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. He silenced them. And so then the Pharisees are like, okay, he got them, but it's our turn. And the Pharisees, verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, one of the Pharisees, who was a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. This is a Pharisee lawyer. That's quite the nasty little combo, if you ask me. Pharisee lawyer. And it's not a lawyer like we think of lawyers. This is a guy who's trained and an expert in the law. He's almost like a scribe. And so he's like, let me go, let me get him. And he asks a question to test him. Here's the question, verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now let me give you a little background on this. That question is kind of a debate at this time. The different schools and the different religious leadership groups, they had different ways that they would answer that. Because they had so many different laws. Like the Pharisees... The religious leaders, they loved rules, they loved laws so much, that they looked in their Old Testament and they counted them up. And there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 613. Some of them don't do this, some of them do this. Do this. And they have 613, and the, these guys love rules and love laws so much, they're like, hey, you know what, I bet we can make up some more. That's exactly what they did. Like, hey, these, 
there's a lot of laws here, but we got to add to this. We got to make more rules because if you make more rules, then and your whole outlook on life is like if we keep the rules we'll be good with God then you make more rules so you can keep more rules and so they did they looked at this law that says keep the Sabbath honor the Sabbath keep it holy take a day of rest every week and they're like that's a good law we can make it better they came up with 39 categories for work 39 different categories of different kinds of work and then those categories they made subcategories and sub rules so that all of a sudden the law was like okay you can write but you can't write more than this many letters on the sabbath and you can walk but you can't walk this far much further than this on the sabbath and you you can you can't spit in the ground and make mud because that's work like you're working on the sabbath you can't get an animal out like all these different kinds of things they made up more rules and because they had so many rules this question arose, well, what are the important rules? They actually classified the law into here's heavy commandments and here's light commandments. Here's the ones you need to focus on and here's the ones you, you, you don't have to spend that much time worrying about. And so the question is kind of designed, if he says focus on this and this other religious leadership group says, no, we should focus on this, then maybe they'll get him. It's, it's designed to trick him like that. But it also just shows you how much they love rules, how much they love the law. And this was the debate. Which are the most important ones? Which ones should we worry about? Which ones have we added that are really, really helpful? Like, what are, what are all these different kinds of laws? So, I mean, you already have the sandal thing, right? Deuteronomy. If you won't, you, the brother won't marry the widow, like, take a sandal off, spit in his face. I mean, that's, a, that's just, is that a heavy law? Is that an insignificant law? Is that an important law? Should we pay, like, they're asking these kinds of questions. I mean, the Old Testament, you have all these kind of dietary regulations. You're probably familiar with this. But he's just like, the gospel kind of cancels most of that out, right? They're like, you can't eat owls. That's in the Old Testament. Don't eat owls. I never looked at an owl and thought I wanted to eat it in my life, but it says that, right? It says don't eat falcons, don't eat eagles. Like, shouldn't eat these kinds of birds. You're like, is that an important law or is that not an important law? It actually says don't eat bats. And I would have always thought that's not very important. But all of a sudden, 2020, maybe that's a heavy law. <laughs> maybe we should have paid attention. Like, they, they just love making up rules and figuring different rules out. And we, guys, we're kind of the same way. If you look at the, like, it doesn't take long on Google to find some really weird laws out there that are still on the books. It's still illegal to this day in California to ride your bicycle in a swimming pool. It really is. Steve Hay told me he's tried it many times and almost been arrested. Like, that's just California. We know California's got weird rules anyway, right? But this, that one's like, Wow. No riding bikes in swimming pools? Okay. In Washington, it's, you can get arrested if you harass Bigfoot. I mean, we're just making up rules just in case. Because if there really is a Bigfoot and he shows up and you harass him, chaos, right? Like, you don't want that. In Florida, it's illegal to sell alcohol during a hurricane. Because Florida man would do that. Like, well, if I have a beer and a lawn chair, I'm going to watch this thing come in, right? <laughs> Of all the weird rules I found in my uh, deviation through Google, this one was my favorite. In New Jersey, it is against the law to wear a bulletproof vest while committing a crime. <laughs> Think about that for a second. If you're in the, in the hideout and you're getting ready to rob the bank, all right, get the, get the bulletproof vest. Oh, no, we can't. We're going to go rob a bank. That's a crime. We can't wear a bulletproof vest. Oh, man, I wish we were doing this in New York, right? Like, what in the world? Like, 
These are real laws. What does it show us? Like, we like rules. We like to set up rules. Like, if I get enough rules and I can follow the rules, then I'll be okay. So which are the important rules? That's where this question comes from. Jesus, tell us, of all these laws, which is the great one? And here's what Jesus' answer is. Love God with all your being. Love him with everything that you have. That's, that's his answer. What's the most important thing? What's the, of all the commandments in the Bible, of all the things that God tells us, if you want to focus on one thing, here's what you focus on. Love God with all of you. It means to treasure him and value him and pursue him with everything that you have. Jesus is very specific. He says, love God with all of your being. We love God with all of your heart, which is kind of the center of who you are. Your will is followed, following your heart. Love God with every bit of your heart. Love God with all of your soul, which is like your whole being and really specifically your emotions. So heart and soul, it comes together as the whole person. Loving him with all of my being is when I love him with all of my heart and with all of my soul. Love him with all of your mind, my intellect. This is not a turn our, check our brains at the door type of thing. Like we engage him with our minds and our, our intellectual ability to know wisdom and to have knowledge and discernment because it all comes from him and to love him with our mind. Love him with all of our being. Jesus says this is the most important thing. There's nothing even close to this. There's nothing that, that you could add to this. It's just love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. And then he gives them a little extra because he says there's a second one and it's just like it. This is not what anybody expected in this moment. He says, there's a, love God with everything, and then also do this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all of your being, heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I know that that passage, like, you've heard that before most likely. Maybe it's new to you, and that's, that's great, but like if you heard that a bunch of times, you know, here's what the Bible says, I'm supposed to love God, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but let me just stop, let's break it down just a little bit so that we really kind of lean in and understand what that looks like. What it assumes at the beginning is that you already love yourself. And I know we struggle with self-esteem and self-worth in our culture, like that's just a struggle, but here's what I'm talking about. Even behind that, what we're talking about is Pursuing satisfaction, pursuing joy, pursuing pleasure, pursuing security, pursuing significance. We are all on a quest to pursue happiness. We're all looking out for ourselves. We all love ourselves by pursuing things for us, for our good. Jesus says, love your neighbor like that. The way that you love yourself, the way that you pursue things for your good, the way that you pursue things for your satisfaction, your enjoyment, your happiness, your significance, your... Pursue those things for your neighbor. You pursue purpose and meaning and joy in life, and you, you, you know where that comes from? Well, pursue that. Help your neighbor to find that. You, you pursue security. You, you want to have clothes. You want to have food to eat. You want to have, be taken well, well taken care of. Like, you want those things? Yes, that's okay. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to love yourself. It's not wrong to pursue these things for your well-being. But he's saying it's wrong when you ignore the neighbor. So love your neighbor as yourself, like you love yourself. The same creativity and passion and energy that you use to meet your own needs, apply that to the needs of others. I, I can get real creative and real passionate 
and spend a lot of energy when I'm looking out for myself and meeting my own needs. Just love your neighbor like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. The same passion, the same energy, the same creativity. Same going out of my way to meet my own needs. Going out of my way to meet my neighbor's needs. This is way bigger than just not harming your neighbor, not doing something wrong to your neighbor, right? This is going out of your way to make sure your neighbor has the things that you're pursuing for yourself. That's what it looks like. Here's, here's a way you can say that. Our self-love is the measure for our love for others. The way we love ourselves, and we, and we do, it, it becomes a measuring stick, a barometer for how well we love our neighbors, how well we love others. Who's your neighbor? Jesus says it's everybody. It's the whole world. People that look different than us, people that act different than us, people that vote different than us, people that think different than us, people that speak different languages, have different cultures. The whole world, that's our neighbor. And so we think, we think through that lens and we're like, oh, okay, so how we love ourselves, how we pay attention to what I need and pursue things for my satisfaction and pleasure, I need to also pursue that for others. Our self-love is the measure of our love for others. So when Jesus is asked this question, hey, what's the greatest commandment? His answer is amazing. Love God with all of your being. And just like it, just as important, love your neighbor as yourself. And he ties these things two together. And we have a great answer that we see from the story of 2,000 years ago. Here's how he answered the question. But it's like, what, do, what can we learn from that? Because as Jesus answers this question specifically to that lawyer, he also is teaching us. He's teaching us something that will help us today and will help us tomorrow and help us every single week of our lives. And I think it kind of boils down to this, love God and love others. That's the, that's the lesson here. That's what Jesus is saying is ultimate and most important. Here's how we should live. Love God and love others. And what he's really saying here is that this is like, this is a summary of the, of the commandments. All the commandments can be summed up in that. You have, the, you have the Ten Commandments. The first part of the Ten Commandments deals with our relationship with God. Honor God. Worship God. Only God. No idols. Take his name seriously. Respect his day. And then the rest of the Ten Commandments, the other six, they focus on our relationship with others. Don't kill. Don't cheat. Don't lie. All, all these different commandments that deal with our relationship with others. And so what Jesus says is, hey, look at the commandments. Look at the law. You, uh, yeah, 613. Here's how you sum it up. Love God, love others. That's what he's teaching us. In fact, if you really want to dig deep in this, what he's saying is that love is the foundation of the law and the prophets. Love is the foundation of us fulfilling what the law and the prophets tell us. Have you ever thought about that? When you think of law and you think of commandments, and if I said, hey, give me a word, you probably say obey, obey. You might say follow, you might say submit, you might say trust. All those words would be true, all those words would be right, but Jesus says there's a better word, love. All the law and the prophets can be summed up in love for God and love for others. It's the foundation. Look at verse 40 in our text. On these two commandments, love God and love others, depend all the law and the prophets. The law, the prophets, all the commandments, they all hang on these two things. They all are summarizing these two things. Love God and love others. That's what it seems like he's trying to teach us. In Romans chapter 13, Paul kind of breaks this down specifically in this love for others and how that's a fulfilling of the law. And I want you to see this. This, this passage will be on your screen. Romans 13, 8 through 10. Paul says, Owe no one anything 
except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Our love for God isn't something that we just come up with. It's something that is responding to us understanding. And that's why I think Jesus says, love him with all your heart, love him with all of your emotions. Not just about feelings, but it's also about loving him with our mind. I read my Bible, I study my Bible, not just so I can have more knowledge and more insight, and not just so I can know how I'm supposed to live my life. I read my Bible because in it I get to know God. Not just about God, he's revealed himself to me. He's revealed himself to all of us in his word. This is who he is, his character, what he's like. And the more we get to know him, the more we see his love for us. And what that does is it changes us, produces us a, in us a love response. And so if you want to love God with all of your being, you need to be a student of God and his love. You need to be a student of the gospel. You need to really go deep in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done. And then here's what happens after that. Love for others becomes an overflow of God's love for us. Love for others, the way Jesus commands it here, becomes an overflow of this love that we have in God. I mean, when you start to really go deep in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done and this gospel and how it changes everything, like every single thing in your life changes because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, what you'll realize is that his love has no end. His love is abounding, it's overflowing, it's everlasting, it's infinite. Like His love just is overwhelming. And the more you study it, the more you understand it, the more you're overwhelmed by it. And then you understand you can't get to the end of it so you can share it with everyone. When you start really understanding who Jesus is and what he's done, it begins to overflow, it begins to spill out of your life onto others because all of a sudden you realize, I didn't deserve this kind of love. I sure didn't deserve him to send his son to die in my place. I should have died that death on that cross. And so all these people around me that are different than me, that maybe I don't, I, I used to think, man, they don't, they're not worthy of that. All of a sudden I'm like, no, they're just like me. And they need to experience the love of God like I've experienced the love of God. And so this love that God has for us begins to spill out unto everybody else. Our love for others is an overflow of God's love for us. Now, I think that's what Jesus is teaching us. I think he answers the question. I think in that answer, we can learn something. But with all the other stuff going on today, come back for just a second, okay? I want you to get this. This is not just about some commandments. This is not just some do's and don'ts today. Even when it sounds like it, it's not. Because here's what it is. I think Jesus is giving us the secret to happiness here. We're all on this quest to find happiness and meaning and significance. And what Jesus is saying is, I think... When you love God with all that you have, and you'll let that love overflow to others, that's when you'll find true happiness. That's when you'll really be satisfied. And there's so many different things the world's telling us. No, 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 find it over here. Find it over here. This is where you find sig significance. This is where you get your security. This is how you find joy and satisfaction. It's all over here. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Give everything you have to Jesus. Love him with all of your being. 
value, treasure, pursue him above everything else. And then life is going to be, it's going to really, really make sense when you do that. And it's going to then all of a sudden, it's going to start spilling over and you're going to be able to love others. And when you do that, it won't be putting yourself on the back seat. It, it kind of looks like that on the surface. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. I need to put them first all the time. My joy, my, my satisfaction is going to take a back seat. No, what he's saying is this is the way you find it. Love God with everything. Let that love transform you so that you begin to love everybody else and you will find that this is the way life was supposed to be lived. That's what he's doing here. He's giving us the secret to real happiness, real joy, real satisfaction in life. It's in loving God and loving others. And he didn't just say it to us. Jesus demonstrated this. Jesus loved God the Father. I mean, there he is in the, in the garden submitting to his will. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus demonstrates that love by keeping his Father's will, by going to that cross for us. The Bible says that he humbled himself and became obedient to the Father, even to the point of death on the cross. He loved God the Father perfectly. And then when he went on that cross, he loved us. He loved others. He took our place on that cross, took the punishment that we should have had to take. So Jesus is not just telling us something. He he lived this out in front of us. He shows us the supreme example of that. Love God and love others. That's what he did. And that's, when you understand that, and you really start to see, that's what Jesus did. He showed us how to love God the Father, and he showed us how to love others. And then it, it produces love for God and for others in us. First John chapter 4. John writes a lot about love in chapter 3 and chapter 4. In verse 19, he says this, we love because God first loved us. Our love is a response. When we see his love, we love him. Why? Because he loved us first. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. He does not love his brother whom, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I mean, all of a sudden, the way we treat each other the way we love others shows us how we love God. It's all connected. That's why Jesus connected them here. If I'm not loving people around me, it probably means that I'm not really understanding God's love for me and I'm not loving him first. You back up to verse 7 through 11 of 1 John chapter 4, it's even more clear. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and he knows God. It's the sign. Anyone who does not love he doesn't know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, was shown to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love God, love others. It's the only way to find satisfaction in this life. It's the only way to find hope in this life through the resurrection life he gave us. And it's the only way to follow Jesus every single day of our lives. And it all comes with us understanding how much he loved us and responding to that. Loving God and loving others. Let's be the church that does that. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the truth of your word, and God, thank you for your love. 
Help us, God. Help us to be students of your love. Help us to know you because we want to know you. Not just facts about you, not just what we're supposed to do, but help us to know you and help us in that to see how much you love us. And God, would you produce in us a heart response of love to you because of it? And God, I'm, I'm so thankful that Jesus is not dead, that he conquered sin and he conquered death and he came out of that grave and that's where we find our hope. And so God, I pray that you would help us to worship you with hope for all eternity in light of that truth and in response to your great love for us. And it's in the name of Jesus who made all that possible, we pray. Amen.